everybody. I'm Burpee. And I'm an Al-Anon. God, am I an Al-Anon. <laughs> Without this program, believe me, I wouldn't be Burpee. I wouldn't be me. I'd be something that uh, you wouldn't recognize right now, and neither would I. I really feel right now like I'm, uh, this is all a big drastic mistake. When I talked to Lee on the telephone, she called me and she said she wanted me to come down here and talk. She gave me a compliment and told me she thought that I was very good at this and I let it go right straight to my head. <laughs> so I'm going to blame her for it. And I want you to know that if none of you like what I have to say and you don't think I deliver it quite well, you can go right directly to her after the meeting and register your complaint, but don't come to me. <laughs> Because as nervous as I am, and when I get nervous, I have a tendency to say things that are very curt, slicing, and I might even deck you. <laughs> because I put my defenses up when I feel vulnerable. Uh, I, I got up early this morning, and I want you to know, I told one of the uh, Al-Anons here, uh, they said, well, do you, do you get nervous when you start to do this? And I said, hell no, no. I've been nervous for days. Days. Uh, but I said, you know, had you been in the room with me when I first woke up this morning until I finished taking my shower, you would have had the best pitch you ever heard in your life. Because it was great in the shower and in the bedroom when I'm alone and everybody else is asleep. But anyway, I'm beginning to calm down a little bit right now. Uh, like I said, my name is Burpee. And first thing this morning to help myself out, I uh, opened up my ODAT, my one day at a time, and I read for today. And you know what I had been thinking for the last couple of weeks was what I wanted to talk about, what, how I wanted to approach what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I had in my mind, I want to talk about the growth with the self-esteem and the rigorous honesty that it took for me, because that is really the key in the Al-Anon program for me. That was the, you know, the heavy dosage I needed was to have rigorous honesty with myself and to build that self-esteem because I was so totally lacking. And when I hadn't thought, you know, to open up the ODAT ahead of time, you know, pages ahead and read it, or even look in the ODAT for any information on this. But when I opened it up, that's what it's talking about. And I'm going to read it. Heard at an Al-Anon meeting. I have only one person's guilt to carry, my own. If the alcoholic blames me for his, dis for his dis difficulties, I will not accept that blame, but I will not defend myself either, for that would only start a fruitless battle. I know he blames me for his painful need to unload some of his remorse on somebody else. This should generate only compassion in me, not resentment or anger. Another member responds, I wish I could believe that, but when my husband gets through telling me off, I feel as though the devil were sitting on my back with a 50-pound wed lace. Wed lace? Wed lace. That sounds good. I don't like it either way. Like a 50-pound wed weight in my finished pocket. <laughs> kind of lost the zip there, you know? I could tell you some things on how I've twisted some words before, but they're really embarrassing, so I won't. There is no need for me to accept blame for another person's irrational actions. I will deal with, own, with my own shortcomings. If I do this honestly, God, that part is 
Following the fourth to the tenth step, the change in me will be reflected in every person whose life touches me. Let me weigh my dis misdeeds on an honest scale and make restitution as well as I can. But let not the scale be unbalanced by the weight of what others have done. That is very difficult to do. I am not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be in my home, working in the house, and running out occasionally to take some iced tea to Bob while he works on some project outside. Right now at the age that I am, I am supposed to be writing letters to my sons who are in college. And I'm supposed to be able to have Terry and Lisa, my girls, bring their children over and let me make pinafores for them and give them advice on how to raise those little dickenses, you know. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be making quilts, gardening, cooking, doing all those good things. That's always been my dream. That's all I ever wanted in life, was to be able to do that. But you see, I can't do that because I've been affected by the disease of alcoholism. And I got crazy at a very early age. The second step, I have often thought about that, you know, that uh, believing that God could restore me to sanity, he couldn't do that because that word says restore. And I never knew it. I was never there. You've got to, to be able to restore something you have to put it back to its original condition. And I don't ever remember having a sane beginning. My first memories are feeling less than. I'm, my full name is Geraldine Lee Berkey by marriage. My mother didn't do that to me. I married it. My mother had me when uh, she lived in Oklahoma, and I came from an alcoholic background. I can remember the story about my mother when I was about 18 months old being kidnapped by my father and taken down to El Paso, where he left me with, some, uh, with an aunt. And I was still nursing at the time, so of course she panicked, and she went after me. She found me, and then she found where he was. He was in a jail in Juarez, Mexico. He'd gone down. Uh, and ripped up the town on a drunk and got thrown in the jug. And it was nothing really more than just a wire compound. And when she went down to see him and tell him that she was leaving, she left him hanging on that wire fence screaming, please, Bonnie, don't leave me. But she had to leave. This was her second alcoholic husband. She had four children by, uh, by three husbands at this time. And I was the last. She took me and she went back to Oklahoma, picked up the other kids, and sold her little house for $45, and put the money in her pocket and took off hitchhiking for California to get out of there and to get away from him, where she went on welfare and learned how to take care of herself. Not too long after that, she married my stepfather, whom I was raised with. Uh, he was a very quiet person and didn't have too much of an effect on me. Where I got the effect, of alcoholism was through my mother. She was an Al-Anon, and she taught me how to think 
not knowing. She didn't do this deliberately. That little woman knew, you know, did the best she could with what she had at the time. But I learned my thinking patterns through her. And from the very beginning, my first memories are that I was dirty. I was not pleasable. I was unacceptable. You know how women will get around and talk about uh, when they gave birth? You know, they get together and they, each, it's one of these deals where can you top this, you know? Well, I spent 14 days in labor and I gave birth and it came sideways. You know, all sorts of stuff like this, you know? Well, this is what my mother used to do, just like all the ladies did. But what I would hear was when she would talk about the drunk and the nasty things he used to do. Tip the tables over with all the dishes. Beat the crap out of her. Do all these dirty deeds, you know, just filthy stuff. Things that had a lot to do with sex, too. Filthy stuff, she said. I got the feeling... That guy was cruddy, you know, he was not a nice person. Now he's only about four or five years old at this time. And I had already decided that he wasn't too nice. And then when she would get angry or exasperated with me, the first thing I got was, you're just like your father, Jesse Griggs. Just like him. And I believed her. I came to the conclusion by putting two and two together that I was nasty and I was dirty and I was unacceptable. I can remember having a keen awareness of my higher power. I like to call him God, so if you'll excuse me, I'll do that. He's mine, so I'll call him what I want. He's God to me. And I can remember at a very early age, after we moved to Oklahoma, I mean, at, uh, I think I'm in Vegas now, to, uh, after we moved to Las Vegas, laying in the uh, grape arbor, looking at the uh, stars and the sky up through those leaves, and being by myself and having an awareness of the vastness and the bigness of it. And I knew that he was up there. And I knew that they told me that he would love me. But you see, I was dirty, so nobody really could love me. I was nasty, so I had to keep that hidden, that I was nasty and dirty, and just pretend like you love me. And pretend like Mom cared about me and pretend like God cared about me, but the feeling was never down in there because of the problem that I had. And I couldn't get close to him. I was aware of him. And I knew he was great and he was big and I knew everybody said that God loves you no matter what, but not you, honey. You're not me. I have to be good for him to love me. So I set out about being good and I had a lot of practice at it. <laughs> It's like I have, for many years, I've said in the program in the meetings, when we would talk about things that I did for the alcoholic, for the children, I'm a good woman. I am a good woman. People began to get the idea that I was so good that uh, we'll just give her a nickname, Mother Superior, <laughs> or the Virgin Mary. <laughs> But this is, this is what I started about doing, was trying to be good. Now, in the way I was raised, and what you do is you grow up, you get a nice husband, you marry him, you have children, and the roses bloom over the cottage, and everything is perfect. And that, uh, that is what I set out to do. I found, well, I didn't have to go looking for him. He lived up just a couple of streets over, and he had played with my brother for many years growing up. So I knew him, but when he asked me to marry him, I said, yes, yes, yes. 
Uh, yeah, that looked good to everybody. Of course, they didn't realize that underneath I felt dirty and no good because I'd let him take me to the lake one night and all he had to do was say that he loved me and I'd do anything he wanted. And I did. And the guilt was just too much, so I married the guy. You know, thank God I've got somebody that's going to make me have exactly what I want. A nice home, lots of children, a good Christian home to raise my children in and the roses are going to bloom over the cottage. But now we had a good time and we enjoyed each other for a good many years because we didn't have any kids for eight years. But as time goes on and responsibilities come along with kids, things aren't so good anymore. And the alcoholic goes into action and I start going into reaction. And I'm good at that. As you can tell by this microphone, I've got a good loud voice. It carries. And I made sure he heard it. He began to drink and lose the paycheck. Well, now that's not too bad at first on occasion. But as time goes on, it wears on. And I start making the difference up. I can paint. I can uh, sell my paintings. I can pay the bills he doesn't. I can cut down on the food bill. God, I'm a good woman. You know, I can cook right now for, uh, my grocery bill right now runs approximately $250 a month, and I run a boarding house. I've got two other men, alcoholic men right now, that live with me. Big men, you know, and they eat. But my grocery bill stays down because of the experience I had as an Al-Anon living with practicing alcoholics. I, my grocery bill, about the time that the money problems really started bothering us, was running about $50 every two weeks. That was back around 1972. And I was doing pretty good with that. But the problems are mounting up. Bobby is staying out more. He's losing more paychecks. The kids are needing more. I'm needing more. I'm beginning to think, you know, there's something wrong. There's something wrong here. Because, you know, I had faith in Bob. To me, it's like I started out in the beginning. God didn't love me because I was bad. But Bob, you know, he knew what I was like, and he continued to tell me that, I, that he loved me. So Bob became the God for me. And I believed what God says. And I believed what Bob said. And when he said, Honey, I promise I won't ever do this again, I believed him. I believed him with all my heart. You know, I honest to God believed what that man said because I didn't know he had a disease. And when he would turn around and do this again after my hopes had been run up sky high and he would come home and the paycheck was gone and he was drunker than shit, I, my, my, you know, my insides would just hit bottom. And I had to fight back, so I did. There's many, many ways that we learn to fight back, too. I went to Denver one time. I was going to leave him and go start a new life. And I hopped in the car with all four kids and took off for Denver to live with my sister, get me a job and an apartment, you know. And my mother, when she found out what I was going to do, she said, oh, honey, take the northern route. It's so pretty. <laughs> and I did. I did. And it was December. And I don't have any snow tires. And I don't have any chains, and I wouldn't know how to put them on anyway. i got to sit in my car right now, and I, I forgot to find out how to put the damn things on. Good thing we didn't run into snow. But you know what veil looks like in the winter in a blizzard? I don't because I couldn't see two feet ahead of me. I could see the bumper of that semi behind me that I followed about two inches to his tail, you know. 
because I was scared. And that's, that's the way we do things. Uh, I used to, uh, one time I remember throwing his bottles down the toilet and trying to flush them down. You can't flush glass down the toilet. <laughs> you really can't. Now, I was not one to go and follow him from bar to bar to bar because I never had a car. And I wasn't going to walk. Vegas is spread out over awful lot of land. And I never knew where he was anyway. So I didn't follow him from bar to bar. But well, I can remember one time, I'll show you, USOB. I'll do just exactly what you've been doing, and I'll show you what you look like. And then you can take care of these kids. By this time, I had two little girls and a set of twin boys, and three of these kids were in diapers. And two of them nursing. One of them, I just, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> I'm an Al-Anon. <laughs> you tell me I can't do it, and I'll do it. Uh, you take care of these kids. Yeah, this is what's going on in my head. So I went down to the liquor store and I got myself a fifth of tequila and that stuff, ooh, it's nasty. So you get, I had to drink it real fast to get rid of it because it tastes terrible. I couldn't just sit there and sip that stuff. It's awful. So I drank that stuff down and got smashed right out of my head. I was sick. And you know, when he came home and he saw the shape I was in, I don't know how these guys get so damn much smarter than me. He called my sister-in-law and told her what a, what a mess I had made. How awful I was. You ought to see the shape she's in. Betty, will you come help me take care of these kids? And she did. And he went to bed. And I laid there in bed, and I'm sick, and he's asleep. And Betty's taking care of the kids. Didn't accomplish a damn thing. I was disgusted with that. I used to put up, you know, with all of the hardships and things, not, not crying, not whining at all to him I would to the neighbor and I would to my mother and everybody else that would listen I used to have uh, for two years after the twins were born I had an old Buick we had an old Buick by this time Bob had, had got himself a, a Dodge truck so he was driving that and allowing me to drive the Buick and Buick didn't have a reverse gear and, but I had to get to town to do the grocery shopping, and I had to buy clothes for the twins. I always bought everything for the, for the kids at, at Penny's, and it was downtown. And when I would go to do my shopping there, I had to load a double stroller, in, break it down, put it in the trunk of the car, and then drive around uh, Penny's, the, the block, the city block, around and around and around with all four of these screaming kids in the car while I'm waiting for somebody on the corner to pull out so that I could pull in and stop the car because I couldn't back up, had no reverse gear. So I would spend about two hours driving around and around and around the block, park that car, and then unload the, the stroller, put it together. Can you imagine all these kids in the front seat of the car in the back seat, you know, screaming and crying? And then I had to put all four of these kids in the stroller and take them into Penny's. And Terry, my daughter, every time you'd get near the escalator, I couldn't go upstairs with this thing. And every time I'd get towards the escalator, she'd throw a fit and start climbing out of that stroller because she, could, she was scared to death of, it, of uh, an elevator. And it was a fight constantly. I used, one time I got, when I was doing this, I got so, so disgusted that what, people couldn't talk to me anymore because I'd come off with something sharp and mean and nasty. I was standing in the check line with all these kids, you know, and people, these, these boys I had were identical. I couldn't tell them apart. I had to put tags on them. You know, I was always feeding the wrong one. 
But I, I couldn't tell these kids pe- apart. You know, and it's the natural thing for people to do when they see somebody with twins. Oh, are they twins? <laughs> you know, I can't even tell the kids apart. And I, it just, this gal asked, stopped me and asked me this, and she was holding me up. I had to get home. I had to get back in the car and get those kids home because both of the boys are wet, and I'm running short of time. Dinner's got to be fixed. You know, and she stops me in line and asks me that. You know, I just look at her. I said, no, I've got two husbands. <laughs> And she looked like, at me like I had three heads. It was rough. One day, Bob worked for the convention service. He still does, too. Putting in conventions. And he made good money, too. It would have been nice had I seen some of it once in a while. But he came home one day after a particularly heavy drunk, and he lost his paycheck. Now, mind you, I'd never been to Al-Anon, and uh, I didn't know about remorseful periods, and that they can be rather short-lived, you know. He came home, and he told me, honey, now, mind you, I believe this man. He's God Almighty to me, and he's crying, and he says, honey, there's something wrong with me. I think I'm an alcoholic. He says, because I I don't want to do this, but I keep doing it. And he shouldn't have done this. He says, honey, help me find some help. And you know, I'm, I'm a prime candidate for Al-Anon. I'll help anybody. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save the world. So I set out to go find help. And I went to a doctor. And the doctor says, maybe you ought to go to AA. I said, okay. So I went to AA. I talked to this guy with NAA at the Thai club down there, and tears were rolling down my face, you know, and he's like this, <laughs> pushing me, and maybe you ought to go over there to Al-Anon. So they directed me to a little old shack outside in the back behind the AA building. We always get the little shack. <laughs> he directed me to that shack in the back. I forgot it was terrible. The wallpaper was all water-stained and peeling off the walls. And the furniture had, you know, the springs are coming through them and it smells of mold and uh, it's not exactly what I want to go sit in, you know, but my husband needed help. And so I was going to get it. And when I went in there, I sat down and uh, I didn't say anything at first. Well, I didn't say anything at all that meeting, but there was a woman sitting across the room and she was telling my story. And I was like, God, I thought she'd been living in my closet or something because it was exactly what I what I was going through. And it's funny, you know, the AAs this morning, or yesterday, was it this morning? No, it was yesterday. God, I'm sure that. <laughs> when Carl B. was talking, I related to him. You know, about the psychiatrist and all of that. It's funny how the AAs have almost the same stories we do. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was the one that was going to the psychiatrist, and my husband was the one that was trying to prove that I'm sick. And I'm such a good Alanon, I'm trying to prove that I'm sick, too. But anyway, I went to this Al-Anon meeting and this gal was talking about her life and it sounded like mine. And I didn't like some of the things that she said, but I was hooked because nobody lived like me. Nobody did these things that I did. And when she said she did, I know there must be something to this. So I kept going back. And I went for about three weeks because somebody, now there was somebody there at the meeting, an old lady that told me, she, uh, I, said, now, I had told her what I'd come for, you know, get my husband well. And she says, forget about your husband. In fact, don't even tell him when you get home that you've been to an Al-Anon meeting. I think that gal was smart. She knew something I didn't know. 
So I didn't. I, I kept it quiet for about three weeks. And then finally, after I'm really convinced that this is it, I decide it's time to tell him. And I go to him and I says, honey, honey, I found it. Yeah, I have. I found it. You go to AA and I go to Al-Anon. <laughs> and everything's going to be great. It's just wonderful. You know, that's going to help us. Because, you know, I found out I'm sick, too. Yeah, that kind of takes it off of him a little bit when I accept a little of the blame. And I said, it, it will work. I've heard him talk about it. They, they say it does work, you know. And he said, and they're looking down and said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. You're not branding me an alcoholic. Hey, just the other day, he said, you know. Just, you think I wasn't confused? <laughs> this is the way I spent most of my life. I was totally confused. Anyway, he would have nothing to do with Alan and that was when the problem really started, because I liked it. It was, it was good. It was working. They told me about me. They told me how I felt inside, like I was a piece of crap. They told me about how I lied about myself and made you think I was something that I wasn't. They told me how I sacrificed myself when it wasn't necessary and that all I was doing was feeding my ego. They told me how I was trying to control him and the children, and everybody in my life, and all the circumstances in my life, and how I can't do that. And they pointed out, they said, T tell me one time when it worked. And I couldn't think of it. There was no time it worked when I controlled. So I stuck with it. Bob was adamant about me not going to Al-Anon, and one day, after these good women had told me about releasing and let them be responsible for their responsibilities, and you take care of your responsibilities, and I thought that was a lovely idea. And one day, uh, he came home with a bad drunk and a bad hangover and no paycheck, and he says uh, he lost his paycheck, and I said, oh, okay, well, Saturday's my grocery shopping day. And I take $50 for an allowance every grocery shopping day, every two weeks, and I go do my grocery shopping. Well, there's no money. That's all right. I'll go do my, I'm going to take care of my responsibility. I go to the grocery store, and I buy $49 worth of groceries. And I, buy, I write a bad check. And I go home and I pile these groceries up on the table. And Bob's out mowing the lawn. And he comes in for his glass of tea. He says, where'd you get all those groceries? What do you say? You know, at the grocery store, honey. <laughs> and I'm going like this inside, you know. I'm scared. And he says, where'd you get the money? I said, I wrote a check. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that face. And he just looked at him. And he went back out and got his iced tea, and he mowed that lawn. I watched him 16 times, same friggin' strip. <laughs> I have an idea that man is upset. <laughs> he doesn't say anything. In fact, he didn't say anything for about a week. <clears throat> didn't talk to me. Not a word. And that's making me uncomfortable. I try to do what the Al-Anons say. You know, I keep going to my meetings, and I, they tell me, keep busy, keep busy. You know, keep yourself busy. <laughs> and I do, and my eyes are on the back of my head watching this guy, because I don't know what he's going to do. And I'm busy. I'm making new shower curtains for my bathroom, and they're pretty. And he doesn't say anything about it. You know, not a word about my pretty shower curtains, my new, my, uh, new frills and what have you. You know, I'm redoing this bathroom. And then one day, about a week later, 
I hear him in the bathroom. He says, honey, come here. Oh, thank God he's going to talk. It's over. Whew, you know, great. I go running to the bathroom, and he shuts the door real fast behind me. And I got it. I got it good. I got a couple of cauliflower ears, and I got a couple of black eyes, and I got two broken hands. Where to hit the wall in the tub. You know, when you hit somebody and they fall in the tub sideways, your butt goes to the bottom, your arms are up like this, and so are your legs, and you don't move. You just stand there, you know, lay there and flounder. But I want you to know something. I'm still a good Alan. I'm new in this program, and I haven't caught it all overnight. It takes time, and it took a lot of time for me. But at that point, I was still a good enough woman that I didn't yell, and I didn't scream because the neighbor might hear the kids might get frightened. And all the time, I'm getting the shit kicked out of me. And I'm too good to yell. Finally, as I felt myself going out of this world, I don't know if I was going to die or if I was dying or if I was going to just pass out because I don't, I've never done that, either one of them. So when I felt that funny feeling like I was going out of it, I screamed. And it, it's the damnedest thing. The minute I opened my mouth and screamed, he stopped. <laughs> and out that door he shot and out the front door threw him off. Kids, I didn't know it at the time when this first happened, but he'd come home from a bar and he'd taken all four of the kids and told them what he was going to do and locked them out of the house. And they knew it anyway. And I'm keeping my mouth shut. But that was, that was about the crowning point right there for me to get busy and stay in the Al-Anon program and start working. And I didn't leave him. I was afraid of him. I left the house and took the kids and left, called the police, and then when they said, you're going to have to prosecute, I said, I don't think I'll do that. And uh, I stayed away for about a week and then came back. And... Uh, I minded my, you know, I, I got a little, enough of the program where I knew not to antagonize him so damn much from that point on. And I started going to Al-Anon in secret. I went in secret for about a year and a half, probably. And then finally it came to the point where I had to tell him. And uh, things were so bad at that point, he would not tolerate the Al-Anon. He actually, he had caught me in it. But one of the boys had, uh, I, I usually would go to the Wednesday night uh, Al-Anon meeting at the Thai Club, and we had... Uh, a Bible class at church on Wednesday. So I'd take the kids up to the Bible class and drop them off, and I'd go to the meeting, come back and pick them up. And one of the twins decided he wanted to be baptized, and they had to have an adult for it. And they called him because I wasn't there, and so I had to fess up, tell him where I was. <laughs> he didn't accept it. He would have nothing to do with me going down and on. So it wasn't too long after that that he decided to split. I told him when he was, he tried baiting me quite often uh, to get me into arguments, but I had learned by this time how to keep my mouth shut, and I would not bite into an argument. And because of this, he, you know, he was trying to bait me into arguing one night, and I wouldn't, and he just took off. He says, that's it, you can have the whole friggin' mess. And he took off and left. Now that was where my program really had to kick in and start working, because you see, I've always been a dependent. When I married Bob, it was because I needed it. I needed somebody to take care of me. This is where I had to start getting honest. And I had to start working up 
the ability to be able to depend, be dependent upon my higher power because there was no man around. I got four kids. I have never worked a day in my life outside the home. And I'm scared. I have no money. He left with the intentions of freezing me out. And I had no money for gas, no money for groceries. My sister-in-law came over to see about me and she plunked $100 down on the table and said, pay it back to me when you can. I said, okay. That was the last time I ever had to borrow anything other than a bank because I, I later managed to establish enough credit that I could get it on my own name. But that was the last time because, you see, I'd been in the program long enough. I had been exposed enough to this higher power to where I was beginning to get a feeling that, you know, he may love me even though I am dirty and even though I can't be perfect, even though I can't walk on water. They were teaching me to get my, keep my eyes on myself and off of the alcoholics. And I was beginning to see inside of myself. And I was beginning to realize the way I had acted all my life and how I had been thinking all my life, how if I had this person, I would be all right. As long as I'm a good wife and I, I behave myself at home, I won't have to go out and work. I won't have to go and apply for that job. I won't have to face the outside world. And I was beginning to know these things about myself. When Bob left, I had enough faith in my higher power that I went upstairs by myself one day and I closed myself in the bedroom. I want, now, it might help to understand. I was raised in a religious background where I knew my scriptures. I knew them forwards and backwards. And I'll tell you, you can get real self-righteous if you don't, you know, if you don't have the right motives and you got a lot of scripture. You can really be self-righteous. Man, I was loaded. But I went upstairs and I believed what I, you know, what I read in that book all my life. And I remembered the story about the children of Israel in, in uh, the wilderness when uh, Moses took them out of Egypt. Everything was great when you're going through the water, you know, and the, the water's piled high and Moses is up there leading you and God, it's just terrific, you know, you got fanfare and the whole bit. And God's right there hanging over you, you know. But when they got out in the wilderness and they didn't have what they were used to and things got tough, you know, they didn't have the food they were used to in Egypt, they started saying, well, back in Egypt, we at least had garlics and leeks, you know. And I got up in that bedroom and I talked to my higher power, my God, and I told him, I said, I know there's been no change in Bob, but there's been a change in me. Help me. Stay with me. Don't let me go back. I don't like garlics and leeks. And every time I had a period when I got shaky inside of myself because I was worried I wasn't going to pay the bills, because I was worried that I wasn't going to be enough for the kids, I'd tell myself, I can't stand garlics and I don't like leeks. I can't stand garlics and I don't like leeks. Don't go back. Go forward. And I hit that program six and seven times a week because I needed to have that right in front of my face. I knew I could not go backwards. I had had some growth and I had to hang on to it. About a year later, I had the opportunity to practice this. I can remember, you know, I never, I will say this to the day I die, and I, I won't ever, probably won't ever have an opportunity to 
to do what I say I didn't do. I never took vengeance out on Bob. That was extremely important to me, that I keep a close contact with my God and not be in the wrong. God, I was having a hard enough time fighting off guilt without adding any more to me. So I would never take vengeance out on Bob. I can remember the, I never, the kids told me one time, you know, they wanted to do something to Dad at Halloween. They wanted to go wrap his house in toilet paper. And the, the worst thing I ever did to Bob was I didn't tell him not to wrap his, his house in toilet paper. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell him to do it. But that was the worst thing I did to that man. I would not argue with him. He took me to court nine times, and I went. And I got through it all. Now, mind you, when I first became single, I didn't know how to work. I had to go to work uh, immediately for groceries and gas. So I went down to the El Cortez, and I put my application in for a uh, uh, food server, waitress. And because, you know, I've been slinging hash to these kids and my husband for, for years, so I figured I could do that. So I went down there scared to death. Now, Jackie Gon was the owner of the uh, Alcatraz Hotel, and that place is a toilet, let me tell you, it's grubby. It's uh, where you work and you get your tips and little yellow coupons off of the end of a, a uh, you know, a stub, off of a coupon that he gives out for free breakfast, 15 cents for every stub. And that's the way I got my money, you know, on these tips. But I, I, can, I talked to Jackie Gone directly. I didn't know that she had to go through the employment department, so I just went up to the office of the owner and I said, I need a job. I've got four kids and no husband. And he said, okay, are you in the union? And I said, what's the union? And uh, he asked me, do you have any experience? Oh, years of it, you know. I used to do that in California all the time. I didn't even know what a union was. He saw through me like a piece of glass. In fact, there was a red-headed gal that went to work with me that was an old-season waitress. And she went to work the same time I did. And I remember the hostess telling me later, Jackie Gon came down and told me, I got this little blonde that I'm going to put to work. I don't think she'll make it, but go ahead and give her a try. She needs some money. And I got this red-headed gal. She'll make it. She's been working as a waitress for years. She'll last. You know, to give, them, give them both a job. The red-headed season waitress lasted three days. And I was there two and a half years because she had done it for years and she knew where to go to get a better job and to get more money and she wasn't as hungry as me or as scared as me. But I stuck that job out for, t for two and a half years. I can remember in the beginning I used to come home with my money and I was so afraid of my finances that I would be, I would check my bills over. I'd have money left over in the bank and I couldn't figure out how that happened because I, I you know, I never was used to having my bills paid. So I'd, I'd go back through the bills, and I'd find that they were paid. It took me about six months to figure out that, there, you know, the bills were paid. I was paying, and the, the difference was that my money was coming home. I wasn't making as much as Bob, but I was bringing it home, and it was paying the bills. So I started spoiling the children. And I started getting, uh, you know, things like movies all the time, dinner out, uh, expensive tennis shoes, good-looking clothes, all this sort of stuff, and just spoiled the little devil's rotten. About this time, when I, like I started to say, when I had this faith in my higher power tested, was at Thanksgiving time. I had left the finally, finally left the Cortez and I was working at the Desert Inn as a waitress. And I got a call that Michael, we were, this was Thanksgiving Day, and uh, I was working and the family was having Thanksgiving dinner at my sister-in-law's house. And they were going to have dinner about three when we got off work so that the whole family could be there. And... Uh, 
they wanted the kids out from underneath their feet. So when they said, can we go to Mount Charleston? They said, yeah, get out from underneath our feet and go play. So the boys all went up to Mount Charleston and Michael, the oldest of the twins, was in an accident. He came down the uh, mountain doing about 50 miles an hour on a sled and hit a tree and exploded his liver in a million pieces. And uh, by the time they got him down to the hospital and got a hold of me and I got down to the hospital, he had taken about 42 pints of blood. And uh, they were just taking him into the operating room when I got there and signed the papers. And I was outside in the waiting room when the nurse came out and they told me they didn't think this boy was, uh, was going to make it. She was very nice about it. And she says, do you want me to get your priest? And uh, I hit her. And they put me in a closet with my brother. And he tried to calm me down. And I think over about a five-month period, they told me about three times this boy was going to die. And not, you know, when they would take him into surgery, five times they took him into surgery. And uh, every time they would do that, they'd, you know, they'd prepare me for the death. And I remember my mother, when I was in the closet, my mother went to the phone and called my husband. And she said, Bob, if you want to see Michael alive again, come now, honey. And uh, by the time he got there, he came into the, the waiting room where we were all waiting. The whole family's lined around the intensive care unit waiting room, you know. And uh, he walked in, and he pointed his finger at me, right in my face. Now, I'm supposed to be watching my cousin because I'm trying to break some of that. But, so I'll just use the letters. <laughs> he pointed his finger in my face, and he says, U-F-C. This is your fault. You did this. And he turned on his heel and he left. And he never came back. I did find out later that he had given, gone down to the blood bank and given a pint of blood. Now my higher power and my Al-Anon program has been working on me. And you know, I didn't break up. I didn't, I just looked at him. I felt like a piece of shit for a minute because you know, our old tapes do get plugged in on occasion. And I looked at him, I never said another word back, but he left. And I was at that hospital for five months, trying to work and be at the hospital, take care of the bills. And I had this on my mind. And one night, Michael is crying because he's heard that the little girl across the hall has leukemia and her parents don't want her to know that she's dying. And Michael gets the idea, God, I've been here five months. I must be going to die too. And he called me from the waiting room one night when I was trying to sleep. And I went to him in his room and I crawled into the bed with him because he was crying. And he says, Mom, I'm going to die, aren't I? And I couldn't, I couldn't comfort him. There wasn't enough of me. There wasn't enough of what I, I couldn't do enough to make the kid realize, you're not going to die. You're going to be okay. I couldn't convince him and I couldn't comfort him. I said, honey, can I please? Let me go get your daddy. Maybe he can give you something I can't. And he says, no. He already knows that, that he hasn't come down, you know, to see me. So he's not going to give in either. And I got nobody to help me. And I'm thinking to myself, why? This is our kid. Why won't you come down?
Why do you have to blame me? God damn it, I was at work. I was trying to support him. You were down there washing your goddamn truck. Where, why aren't you here? You know, I can remember, Bob, when we had these kids brand new, little tiny tots. We'd go to the Valley of Fire, this park out there where you climb the rock. I was allowed to go out there as a child and just climb all over the mountains and do anything I wanted while my mother sat and crocheted and just gave us the picnic lunch. When I would take, you know, when Bob and I would take those kids out there, he'd say, don't get off the path. Now, honey, don't let them get off the path. They'll get hurt. And if they got hurt, he was the first one right there with the band-aids and with cleaning off the wounds and everything. He was a good, loving father. Now, what the hell has happened? Why aren't you here helping me with this boy? I'm beginning to question. God, give me some answers. Give me some help. I can't hang in through this all by myself anymore. And while I'm laying there in the bed, I thought to myself, you know, Bob can't face this. He's guilty. He wasn't there to take it. Because I'm thinking about these band-aids and the antiseptic that he was always right there to apply. And I thought, he's guilty. He can't face it. That's why he's not here. And that's when I started getting honest about the alcoholics and not blaming anymore. That's when I had the ability to start looking inside of me and say, where were you at fault? What did you do? How honest are you? You see, at this time, I've only been divorced uh, a couple of years now. And I got all these kids to take care of. And I'm all by myself. And I've never worked. And it's hard learning how to do those things when you're as old as I was. And everything is different. The outside world is different. I go to church and they look at me different. The men act different. You know? I had one incident where one of our very best friends we used to play pinochle with after church, go to the lake with, you know? And I went over to have him fix a little piece of wooden dowel for me in his garage after my, I'm divorced. And let me tell you, he acted different. He says, well, haven't you? And I said, no, and I never will. He says, you will. And he was right. Because I got all these kids and all this responsibility, and I'm scared. And I'm alone. And that's got to be justified. I want you to know that. I have to justify this need I've got. So I do. But if I go to church, I can't justify it because they keep telling me different things, you know, than what I'm thinking. So I stop going to church. Now, this guy at the Cortez is a chef, and he chases me. Now, I was not an easy one, I'll tell you that. He chased me for six months. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And then when I, you know, when he would, no, no. Oh, shoot. <laughs> so I would just be there to talk or just happen to be in the hall or just happen to meet him on the stairs, you know. Oh, no, no, no. Now, I couldn't tell you that until I got honest. <laughs> For years, I blamed that sucker. But I had just as much to do with it as he did, and I ended up having an affair with this guy, and you know, he was married, he had a bunch of kids of his own. Now, I'm a good Christian woman, and you don't go around doing those things with married men and feel good about it, you know? I slacked off on my meeting, didn't go to church at all, had a hard time telling the kids things, you know? 
That's one I never did have me over stay overnight at the house. Never did do that. Thank God. Those kids would not, you know. I, there's too many of them, and there'd be too many questions. But anyway, I had to face myself with that, and I didn't like having to do it. But I'm beginning to have enough time underneath my belt in the program that I'm learning how to do it. And I've got a good sponsor that teaches me good, rigorous honesty. And I have come to the conclusion. I've come to this conclusion, you know? What I said in the beginning. I'm supposed to be home. Making quilts and taking tea to the old man. And having the kids in college, helping with the grandchildren. It hasn't worked out that way. I've got four children, two girls, 26, 24, two boys, 22 and 22. And uh, there's not a one of them that's really, you know, that, that can say they're, uh, there's not a one that can say they're Al-Anon, let's put it that way. They're every one candidates for the program. I've got the two girls are in the program. Uh, Terry Lee and Lisa, both in the program. The boys, they're out practicing and doing a good job of it. They should have it perfected within a few years. But, you know, with the, with the kids, with the responsibility that I had, with the things that I had to go through, I think to myself, had I not had these things happen to me, had I lived such a life that the cottage would, you know, the, the roses would bloom over the cottage, had the boys got into college and the daughters brought the grandchildren home and I had been able to take iced tea to the old man every day like I wanted, you know what I'd be doing right now? I'd be feeling the same way I felt when I first started this like a piece of shit inside. I had to be one of those people that had to have all of this happen to me so as to force me to the point where I could be honest and tell you what I really am. I am a housewife without a husband. I have a nice home. I have come to the point in this program where I can see, you know, I cannot tell you that, it, you know, I cannot lay claim to being the Virgin Mary or the, superior, the Mother Superior anymore. I have to be able to tell you what I was, the things I did and the things I felt down inside of me, the hate and the disgust, the lack of self-esteem, uh, all of that, it has to be told so that I can feel as clean as I feel. I took on, after I managed to settle this situation with this married man in my mind, I came to realize that I have, you know, I, I have a need at times, this need for another person to love me. But I begin to notice that the only, th the only time this need is predominant is when I have fear, when I feel insecure. I have that come over me at times. But by the time I learned this, then I realized, you know, what I have to do is be able to depend on my higher power and the fear goes away and then I don't have that need. So I cut the, the relationship with this man. This was a good long while back and I have been celibate for that amount, you know, for a good many years now.
because I figured, you know, if God wants me to have somebody, he's going to put somebody in my life. I don't want to have somebody out of this need. I don't want to have to need him to love him. It's, it's not real love. It's a need. Now, if one day if I meet a man that I can become acquainted with and be good friends with, and we want to live together, that's fine. Then I will live with him and I will learn to love, with, love him. And it won't be out of a need, out of my lack, my lacking. And you know, I've learned how to be happy. You know, I see so many women that don't think that they can be happy unless they got that guy on their arm. And it's not so. You can be. I've got the, one of the fullest lives. I have more of a full life now than I would have ever had if I'd had, you know, roses blooming all over the place. My kids are all in, uh, you know, uh, they've all suffering from the disease. Every one of them. I got two of them still practicing, but I don't suffer. You know, just recently, well, it was last month, I've come to the point, you know, where I, I have learned, this is a good part, I do want to bring this up. They said, in, pardon me, they said in a meeting, one time, they were we were, one of our subjects was uh, releasing with love. And it hit me a couple of weeks back. I don't like to say it that way. I like to say it, release so that I can love. You know, because when I, these kids were out practicing, I was always in there trying to fix, trying to take care of them, trying to show them how it's done. And I pushed them away from me. Just not last month, Michael decided he wanted to get married, and I put on, uh, this was one of my biggest dreams, was to be able to put my kids' wedding on. I used to do this for the girls in the church when I was going to church back then, you know, before Alana. And I used to put on some fabulous weddings, and I thought, I got four kids, and they're going to grow up, and I'm going to get to do this for them. And uh, so Michael decided he wanted to get married. And during this, you know, I worked, got the thing all prepared, and the day of the wedding, I got my mother over there, and the preacher's over here, and my kid's here, and the new wife is there, and there's beer flowing. Boy, this kid's got a beer in this hand. He's got another one over here, and he's taking it upstairs to the best man because he's got to have a beer. My mom's turning inside out because the preacher's sitting there and watching all of this, and it's not bothering me. And I see that kid get, just barely get, you know, get down the aisle, half sober, and it didn't bother me. I w didn't have a nerve ruffle. I had a ball. I never enjoyed anything so much in my life because I'm releasing so I can love. When I release these kids, it, makes, it ha makes me have time to love them. Makes me have the ability to love them. Because I'm not in there trying to fix them all the time. Anyway, I want to bring this to a close. I've got these four kids. They're, they're the majority of my life right now. I don't, none of them live with me. I've got the, uh, the two alcoholic young men that, that board with me right now. My life is busy, constantly. I very seldom have time to sit down. I've got adorable girls that I sponsor in the program. I have the ability now to give something to somebody else that I've gained through the program. It's made me feel whole. I don't feel dirty anymore. I have a close relationship with my higher power. I feel close to him, and, and you know, I found out that the guy loves me, even if I do do something wrong. This program works. I could never 
I could never, 10 years ago, imagine me standing here being able to share anything with you because I always hid everything before. I've got all the hope in the world. I will never give this program up. Never as long as I live. I get, I get, uh, I get so busy sometimes and I have such a good feeling that I feel like I just want to explode. So happy because I've been so blessed. And you know, 10 years ago, to stop and think, if I had ever thought that I could be happy without the husband, the kids, the cottage with the roses, it would have been impossible for me. I could never even fathom such a thing because I was such a total dependent. I work at a job now where I run the men's grill at the Las Vegas Country Club. I deal with a lot of alcoholic men. You know, there's a lot of rich men out there that are alcoholic. And I think most of them are right there at the club where I work. When I first started out, I didn't have any self-esteem, remember? I was scared to death to go to the Cortez and ask for a job. And I got to thinking the other day, I have, I've heard myself on time say, I did this. I did this. I worked at the Cortez. And then I went and got myself a job at the DEI. And then uh, I got this job at the country club. In fact, they even sent a girl over to find me for that country club because, you know. And one, not too long back, I stopped and realized, you know what? I left the Cortez scared to death for one reason, to get the hell away from David. To get away from that guy, because I could not handle the situation being there with him. So I got away from there. I quit my job at a time so that I would be facing my next two days off. That way I had two days free that I wasn't going to get paid for, that I never get paid for anyway. And that way I have a, an extra edge of two days to go find another job. I got hired through the union at the DI the next day and I missed my two days my two days off. I didn't have anything to do with that. I was protecting myself with the little extra edge of two days. I didn't have anything to do with getting the job. The union got it for me. And then when I got, you know, when I was at the DI and I changed and went to the country club, the gal had been, that had that job had been trying for months to retire, but they couldn't find anybody to work it. That would, would handle, that could handle that job. They didn't want to handle it. It was two rooms. I have to take care of two rooms. And they couldn't find anybody. So Janie says, I'll go find you somebody myself to hell with the union. So she went and found somebody else. She remembered me from the Cortez because I'd worked with her for about a week up there. So she hunted me down and came and got me. I didn't have anything to do that. So I have to take the thumbs out of there. You know, I haven't done a goddamn thing in my life. Not a thing, except learn how to be honest, learn how to build my self-esteem by keeping my eyes on myself and working those 12 steps, and by depending on my higher power. That is all I have done that's had any results. The only thing. You know, it's kind of deflating at times because, you know, I would like to take some of the credit. 
You know, I was so tickled when, you know, Bob used to take me to court those nine times. He wanted that household, and I had it in joint custody. And I was scared to turn loose of it, but I needed it for those kids to raise those kids in, and I didn't want to lose that house because I wanted it for me. I love that place. It's my home, and I love it. It's too big for me. You know, it's got an acre and a quarter of property, and it's a lot of lawn to, to mow. And, when, you know, when I noticed I'm a little bit short on money, because I did buy him out, I did manage to, you know, to make enough money that I could buy him out, and I got the house in my name, but I still got to make the payments. So I thought, well, I'll get somebody to uh, move in with me, you know, and I start taking in these alcoholics, and they pay room and board, and I get to watch them grow, which helps me grow, and I get the lawn mowed. <laughs> and I get the house payments made. I got three mortgages I got to pay. And they pay them for me. And they feel, you know, and those suckers feel blessed. <laughs> they think this is great. God, I got this great big house and Burpee's such a good gal. Yeah. And, you know, I'll sit there and let them cry their blues and tell me all about it, you know, and I'll give them a little bit of feedback and whatever, and it just works great. But I didn't do that. He didn't. All I did was follow the directions. Right there in the 12 steps. Sometimes I'd veer off, you know, and he'd have to yank me back. I'd get that and he'd pull me back. But I feel good about me. Sometimes I even go a little bit overboard. You know, we went, at the girl, some of your gals <laughs> took me up dancing last <laughs> And I'll tell you, I really have become too independent. Merrily, one of the girls who came up with me had got on me last night because we sat there, you know, and we're waiting for some, you know, these guys are all standing around there with their finger up their nose, not knowing what to do. Nobody ever told them how to ask a gal to dance. You know, and I'm sitting there, I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Nobody's moving, you know. None of the single guys are making a move. They're standing there with a bottle of beer like that. That's it, you know. Well, all right, I sit there long enough. It's an, an hour and a half, and I'm ready to go home. I get up out of the chair, and some wa guy walks over to me and says, Where are you going? I said, I'm going home. Well, what for? And I said, I'm tired of sitting on my ass. He said, Well, I was going to ask you to dance. And I said, Well, you're too friggin' late. And I left. I got outside, and I thought, Wait a minute, that's what I wanted there to do there in the first place, is dance. She either do it my way or else. You know, you don't get to dance with me. You don't know what you're missing out on. Neither did he. I'm getting too independent. I've got too much self-esteem sometimes. Because you know when I tell you I'm a good gal, I'm a nice woman, I'm a hell of a woman. I believe it. Because I am. Because I work this program. I work those 12 steps. And let me tell you, God don't make junk. And when you work those 12 steps, you're going to have what God intended you to be. Something great. Something that doesn't blame the alcoholic anymore. You love the alcoholic. I have my husband. He comes over maybe once every two or three months and sits. And I just love him. He sits there with those longing eyes, wishing he was back. And I love it. I do. I got some ego. And I let him feed it. I bet it is long enough. No, I don't blame the alcoholic. I know where that man's coming from. I do. He's sick. Just like I was sick. And just like Michael's sick. 
and Daryl and Terry and Lisa. The ability to release so I can love. I've got to tell you this one thing before I quit. I've had one daughter take her child and say, I'd give her up for adoption before I'd give her to you. And I kept my mouth shut. And there's nobody, nobody on earth that I love more than my kids and that baby girl. I had one girl come to me, Lisa, one day after church. She, Mom, you want to go to have dinner? Sure. I took her to dinner, and she says, Mom, remember that girl I brought over to dinner the other night, Sean? I said, yeah. That's an ugly girl, you know, she's kind of homely. I said, I, I, she'd be real pretty, honey, if she'd fix herself up, you know, and put on something frilly and a little bit of makeup. And she says, well, she doesn't want to look like that, Mama. She says, I'm going to have to tell you, I'm gay. Now, I'm a Christian woman. You know, this, this is the way I was raised. And I don't understand, this. I don't accept this. And that was hard to take. That is one of the most beautiful girls you'd ever want to see in your life. I don't have any ugly kids. They're gorgeous. And I see that girl. She is such a mother, a loving girl. But she's alcoholic. And she's gone a long, long route and had a lot of involvement with men. And I can understand. When you get hurt enough, sometimes you go in reverse. You know? And there was a three years, three years there, where there was hardly any communication because it was very difficult for me to accept. I don't accept it. I don't believe it. I don't accept it. But I can love her. I, had a, I went to an alcoholic that is a close friend of mine not too long back, and I said, I need some help with this. How do I deal with this? And he said, well, my sponsor told me to let go. If, those, if your kids want to love you, they'll come and love you. If they want to be with you, they'll come and be with you. I didn't like that. It didn't sit well with me. I'm an Al-Anon. And I just didn't like it. It didn't sound Al-Anon to me. So I called this other person, and I'm talking to him, you know. And I, I wasn't asking advice from this person. I wasn't asking for guidance. It was just a friend. In fact, it was a guy that had gone with her a good while back. And uh, we were talking about her. And I said, what about this? And he said, Burby, why don't you do what Al-Anon teach? And just love. With no expectations. And you know, I started doing that. And it worked. Lisa has been around. And I can hold her, and I can love her, and I don't feel judgmental, and I don't give a damn what the hell she's doing, just as long as she's there so I can love her. It's like the wedding. I didn't hurt. I wasn't guilty. It didn't bother me that they were drinking. That's their bag. Let them have their bag. I can love them. I got time to love them. I can love them because I'm not in there fixing. I'm not in there judging. Let them do what they got to do. Hell, I had to go my way. I had to hit bottom, and I had to do some things that I don't agree with. I don't agree with screwing around with married men. When I, you know, I, 
I had a bad conscience for that. Maybe she's got a bad conscience. Maybe Terry has one. Maybe the boys do. I don't know. I'm not going to ask them. That's theirs to deal with. I'm just damn glad none of them asked me when I was doing it. Because I don't know what the hell I would have said if one of them says, Hey, Ma, what you doing with David? You know? I couldn't handle it. Thank God they kept their mouth shut. I thought I'd try my own uh, method, you know, their method, and do it myself and keep my mouth shut. It works. Release them. Let them have what they want. Let them do what they want. Let them live their lives the way they want it. And then I got time to love them. And boy, I enjoy that. That's why I, I don't, you know, my Al-Anon babies, I kind of got this, you know, this idea through Sunny, but I had it in the back of my mind because of my Al-Anon babies. They call me. I can see what's going on. I tell them. I hang up the phone and go back to sleep. I don't get into their bag. If they want to go, you know, as soon as I've said it, if they want to go back and, ha and finish the fight, that's their business. I just don't get into it. I go on back to sleep and do what I want to do. You know? It works. Release so you can love. Have that rigorous honesty. Really look inside of you. Are you up checking your motives? Do I check my motives? What do I want this for? What do I want to do it for? Am I honest with me? Is that where I really came from? Am I honest with being honest with you? And get that self-esteem up. Keep busy. And try things you never did before. I'm a hell of a good waitress now. My boss tried to get rid of me a couple of months back because he got pissed at me. He was mad. I hurt his ego. Hurt his pride. And he tried to get rid of me. And I think it must have been about six or seven of the board of directors went directly to him and said, you will not get rid of her. She belongs down there. We can't have that place without her. You can learn how to do things that you never did before if you just put your faith in where it belongs. And I just keep saying, I don't like garlics and I can't stand leeks. I ain't going back. I couldn't stand me being me now, like it was 10 years ago, that was a dumb dipship. <laughs> I like you now. And I'm hoping to get better. Thank you.